The doorway that got me started on this particular weekend was the fact that it's the new year. We're starting into a new year. It's been a very difficult year for many, many people, probably for most of us. And now it's the beginning of a new year and there's a sense of like, okay, is there, what's possible now? And this is often at the beginning of New Year's, there's that tradition of people making New Year's resolutions. And I've always thought, hmm, that's an interesting thing. But what we're saying when we ask or if other people have made one or if we make one, it's, is, are we in some ways interested in a reset, you know, a, a reorientation, a coming back, uh, coming closer to what's important to us. And I was uh, standing around socially distanced with masks on a bonfire last night with a few people and for a little while. And there was one person who said that he had, somebody asked, did he have a New Year's resolution? And he said, yep, same one I have every single year to be a better person. And I thought that was quite lovely. He said, you know, it, each year that that's his intention as he starts the year. And perhaps in some ways all resolutions come to that, either for us individually or collectively, to see what might take us closer to our f- true selves, to our kindness, to our freedom, to our ease, that each year potentially, what will allow us to move in that direction towards more uh, more satisfactory, wholesome, connected life. And I was thinking about all the ways collectively and individually this last year that we showed up, that we were you might say, better people than we even knew we could be. You know, just the amount of renunciation that all of us have undertaken this year, that all the things that you thought you wanted to do or that your, you, you know, your vision of what your life was and all the things you let go of in service of caring for the whole, in recognition of how interconnected we are, and that if you are sick, that weighs down on the health system, if you pick up something and take it to someone else, if, you know, this whole sense of like, oh, we really letting go of things in order to tend and care to this whole condition we're in, this pandemic that we're in. And, you know, everything from all the things you let go of to the wearing masks and uh, taking, washing our hands and taking care of other people in that way. It's actually quite remarkable what, what we've done together. I remember very early on somebody pointing out that the empty streets were actually a sign of love, that it was a sign of us loving and caring for each other, including ourselves. 
And I thought that was a beautiful, instead of feeling like it was somehow destitute, that it was really the opposite. And I really, I really felt that sense. Another way that a lot of um, care collectively shown up this year was around social issues in ways that we haven't seen in, um, you know, quite a few years around, you know, it's hard for me to say people's names, but around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, I mean, the list is goes on a long ways and all the pe- protests and people that we discovered that, again, that we are in this together. And the question of how can we be better, how can we be better? How can we be more true to the goodness of who we are? And that question comes up, and these are one of the ways that we responded to that, by standing up for those who no longer could stand up for themselves. And that's an ongoing task for us. How do we do that? And more people voted this year than have ever voted before. And more people wrote letters and got involved in all sorts of different ways. It's really interesting in the midst of the pandemic how much we showed up. And that's quite beautiful. And it's almost like this external, this collecting in and sharing out that these, you know, the sort of like fear, but necessary taking care and closing in and going out. It almost reflects a kind of pattern that is often here, but not not exactly, but that what do we pay attention to in a different in a given moment? What's required of us? Are we going to step forward or is this a time to step back? Is this a time to do something that is wholesome? Or are we getting seduced by something that's unwholesome? Not that any of the things I mentioned so far are unwholesome. But how many times also this year did you find yourself uh, with a more, uh, let's see, how would they say it, a um, higher screen habit? Or, you know, they say that uh, people's addictions tended to explode this year. That um, sometimes we get caught in our very difficult mental thought patterns that can be quite negative. I think all of us have experienced that at points this year where we start churning around in the same story that is not helpful to us. And that's a kind of addiction to a certain set of thoughts that comes. Tanisara said something that I, a short quote that I really like that really speaks to what I want to what I'm bringing in this weekend which is she says we are in the midst of a great struggle between two forces the imperative to change and the apathy to stay the same and this is what we often you know the 
when we make the resolution for a new year, when we try to do something, we're trying to let that imperative to change come through us and trying to fend off the apathy to stay in the patterns, the unwholesome, the less skillful, the more habitual that we may have as, part, as our history, as our conditioning, really. And this is, in a big way, a description of what the practice is, what the meditation, what the, the offering of the Buddha is, is how to work with this dynamic of the pull to change and the apathy to stay the same. And this is guided fundamentally by our goodness, because We know that we are good. We know that we have wholesome tendencies. And we want those to come through. And yet we get pulled back by our history, by the habits and the conditions in which we grew up, that we have cultivated in our culture. You know, certainly the... uh, the police brutality and the systemic racism are this ancient, so 400 years of history that we are trying to change. And it's not easy. And yet, it, it, and it takes effort and it's worth it. It's absolutely necessary. When we are in this process of moving towards liberation, moving towards freedom, there's two different ways that we often go about it, which are worth mentioning, that that there's these two avenues. One is that we do practice and we attend to the goodness that is already here, recognizing our beauty, our wholesomeness, our divinity, the fact that we are part of uh, an undivided, magnificent whole. And from that comes great compassion and kindness and generosity. And these are here in us. We don't need to create, make those happen. But it is helpful to recognize them and to <coughs> excuse me, allow them to come through and to orient towards that. And then there's also another way that we practice that's important is attending to that which is difficult, to see where we do things that are unskillful or unwholesome, and to notice the impact of it and how it affects us. This is a poem from uh, Hafiz pointing to this uh, orienting towards the good and cultivating that. He says, We have not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to prevent 
befriend those aspects of obedience that stand outside of our house and shout to our reason, Oh, please, oh, please, come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. So we're trying to find our way, come out and play. Let that beauty in us come out and play. And sometimes we do that directly, and sometimes we notice it. We do it by noticing how it gets blocked. In both of these ways of practicing, and they alternate with each other constantly, one of the things, there are two factors that I want to name that are so important. And they are the two factors of attention and intention. It's interesting. They're very similar in the English language, but they're two different aspects. And these two factors are understood in the Buddhist psychology to be present in every moment. And you can check this out for yourself. Every moment has some quality of attention and every moment has some quality of intention. And this evening I'm going to talk more about attention and then tomorrow we'll investigate intention a little bit more. Both of these qualities are inherently neutral. Attention can lead you in a wholesome direction and it can lead you in an unwholesome direction. And that's true of intention as well. So it's a matter of what it's paired with. What guides the attention? And the word, as it's uh, in Pali, in the Buddha's language, manisankara is the word. Manisankara, mana means mind, and karate is to make. And what it is is to bring to mind attention, manisankara. And the reason I'm telling you this particular Pali word though I'm going to, there's just a few I'm going to give you, is because there's a modification of it that is quite wonderful. So Manasakara is just the neutral aspect of attention. And then the modification of it is Yoniso Manasakara. And Yoniso is, the shortcut would be wise, or appropriate attention. But the word yoni, yoniso, and the brood of it, yoni, is womb or origin. And it's the quest here is to put our attention right into the origin of things, right where it's most useful, right to be effective and thorough and penetrative, to go right into the source. And so this Yoniso Manasakara, this wise attention, is a key aspect of our practice and the possibility of bringing more ease in our lives. And that's what I want to, this evening, really bring you into this investigation of Yoniso Manasakara. And this is the foundation. We talk about mindfulness a lot. And 
you know, we're sort of in the middle of this mindfulness revolution of what is mindfulness? It's everywhere. But underneath the root of the mindfulness, what makes it have a wholesome quality is this aspect of wise attention. And it said that the, that's what brought the Buddha to enlightenment was the use of Yoniso Manasakara. And wise attention comes on many different levels. It can be, it, we can cultivate it at any time. We can do it in our practice <clears throat> very directly, when, in our formal practice, I mean. When you sit on the cushion or your chair or wherever you bench and you direct your mind to a particular thing, like to your breath or to scanning your body, you are training your mind. Mind training is the training of Manasakara. That's what we're doing, is learning how to guide the quality of attention. And it's from this mind training. Now, in, it's not yet Yoniso Manasakara, because, and that's the difference between just, it's not that we just want to be here, like just that everything is, uh, let's say, sometimes we can have the idea that the point of practice is simply to be present to what's here whatever it is. And this leaves out a very key aspect of what the Buddha taught, which is that we are making choices in every moment. And we want to have the power to make our own choices, to choose what we're paying attention to in a given moment. And when we choose, then we can choose Yoniso Manasakara. We can make a wise choice about what we attend to. And we can do that with many, many aspects during our day. We can do that with a thought that arises. We can do that with what we attend to around our house, around with other people. When you meet someone, what is it that you attend? Where do you put your attention? And is that skillful or not skillful? And the way that we can do that is by training our mind. So this is the motivation for practice. This is the motivation for why you sit on the cushion and the bench or the chair. is because you're learning to put your mind Put your attention, that particular quality, where you want. Instead of it just running rampant wherever it wants to go, you are choosing. And the more you choose, make a choice, the more you train yourself to be able to put your attention where you want it, then you're opening up the possibility of choice. So, you know, here's a really simple example. Somebody 
you have the, I have the idea that somebody has slighted me in some way. And now I can, it's starting to create a story in my mind. And right in that moment, I have a choice. Am I going to put my attention on the fact that I have been, that I've been slighted? I've decided that in whatever way. Or am I going to instead turn my attention to something that doesn't tell that story? It could be thinking about the positive qualities of the person that I'm thinking about. It could be making a choice to just think about the positive qualities in my own heart. Or it could be to watch a bird. But I'm making a choice to not dwell in this unwholesome structure of believing I've been slighted and all the proliferation that might come from it. What I'm describing here is the distinction between Yoniso Manasakara and A A Yoniso Manasakara. A in the Pali language is just like in our language that it negates it. So A Yoniso is to say not wise attention, unwise attention. And when we put our attention on things that are unwise or used in an unwise way, what arises? The five hindrances. That's now we start to get into greed and aversion and restlessness and doubt. All of the qualities when we attend unskillfully, then we get caught. Here's a poem from uh, Kabir. I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? So you believe there is some place that will make this soul less thirsty. In the great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, Just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Can you hear in what I've been describing that this is Kabir instructing us to guide our attention to where it is useful? Don't get lost in imaginary things. Don't go off creating a story that is going to pull you. Stay right here in the goodness of who you are. Stay here in this body which is telling you the truth. That is trustworthy. When we stay in this wise attention... The Buddha said it is from the wise attention that the seven factors of awakening arise. And these are what lead to freedom and liberation. So if you're familiar with those factors of investigation and energy and joy and tranquility, equanimity, mindfulness, these are all factors that come 
from wise attention. And Bhikkhu Nalio says, in short, all wholesome qualities have their root in wise attention. So what are some of the... Oh, so I'm going to read you a little sutta. Just, it's very short. A sutta from the Buddha. And you can pretend this is a sutta that there was a monk. He was practicing out in the woods, hanging out there in the forest grove. And he spent the day, maybe you've had at least a sit this way, or maybe you've had whole days. I think I've had whole days like this. Thinking unskillful thoughts. And unskillful thoughts such as those of sensuality, this is uh, of sort of sensuality in the sense of wanting things of the senses, a kind of wanting, wanting something you don't have. Or thoughts of ill will, another kind of unskillful thought. Or thoughts of doing harm. So he had spent the whole day thinking in this way. And this deva... So in the suttas, there's often these tree spirits or devas that come and talk to people when they need help. And you can, fortunately, we all have devas inside us as well as all around us. So your deva can come to you perhaps in the right moment. And this is what it, the deva said. From inappropriate attention, you're being chewed by your thoughts. I like that, being chewed by your thoughts. Have you ever felt like you're being chewed up and about to be spit out by your thoughts? You're being chewed by your thoughts. Relinquishing what's inappropriate, contemplate appropriately. Keeping your mind on the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. On your virtues, you will arrive at joy, rapture, pleasure without doubt. Then, saturated with joy, you will put an end to suffering and stress. So, the advice from the devas. So those are some of the ways that we attend unskillfully. By getting caught up in wanting what we don't have, by getting caught in uh, the unskillful thoughts of doing harm or thoughts of ill will. But there's also other ways, which are just simply by being distracted, by being forgetful in a kind, being confused. There's many ways, and some of them are more neutral. They're not causing harm so much, but they're not cultivating any any wholesome qualities. And they're leading to suffering. They're leading us into suffering. So... We can check this unwise attention. Where is our mind? Here's another way that the Buddha said we can attend unwisely. That's a little bit more, um, how do you say, we know that ill thought, ill 
you know, thoughts of ill will or unskillful. And, but here's another way, he says. This is how one attends inappropriately. This is from the Sabasava Sutta. He says, this is how I attend inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? So in other words, he's trying to name all the different ways you can fill in sort of the rest of the nouns dwelling on the past in one way or another, telling yourself stories about it, making yourself up from it. He's saying that this kind of mental proliferation on the past is not skillful. It's not actually getting you um, leading in a direction that reduces suffering. And then he goes on, continues, other ways to attend inappropriately. Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future? Okay, so there he's got us on all the thoughts that we start churning out about the future. But he doesn't even stop there. He goes, or else one is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? Seems like he would not have had much... um, The Buddha did not have much sympathy for that question about am I or am I not. To be or not to be does not interest him. What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? He's saying that all this kind of mental proliferation where we get ourselves all caught up in twists and talk isn't isn't helpful. It's not a wise direction for leading to the cultivation of kindness, compassion, and freedom. And this is where we can really start to see and watch, am I deciding how, what I'm paying attention to? Or am I being swept along? It's interesting, I notice when I wake up in the morning, perhaps you have a, that time or a different time of day, or sometimes when I go to bed at night, my thoughts are particularly evident to me. And I notice that because I do have a fair amount of mind training, that I can make a choice. Am I going to do something skillful with my thoughts right now? Or am I going to let them just run around? And it's interesting how sometimes I just sort of don't really pay attention. And it's, it's kind of a mess, if you know what I mean. You know, I don't know what the next thought's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be skillful. or doesn't, And it doesn't really ever lead anywhere. On the other hand... I can make a choice and practice. If the mind seems a little active, I can practice a little metta. I can do something, um, you know, I can pay attention to my body. What I've noticed for myself is when I wake up in the morning that that's actually a very constructive time. If I, 
I think probably most of this retreat was planned in those early hours as I wake up in the morning and I say, oh, I'm awake enough, let's think constructively now. I have something that I need to put my attention on. So it's a choice that we can make. And our practice helps train us to make that choice. So if we attend inappropriately, this is where it's not harmless. It leads us in directions that we don't want to go. And what happens when we attend inappropriately is we see a distorted version of the world. It leads into what's called the vipalasas, which are distortions. And there's many levels of distortions that we can be affected by. And the simplest level is just perception, on the level of perception, right in a given moment. If we're not paying attention, if we're not using our sense of training and skill to pay attention, we will miss a lot and we will see things inappropriately. Perhaps we will see somebody, say we meet somebody, and if we're not paying attention, our immediate perception will be, you know, that person is not appealing to me in some way, that that's where our mind will go. Like just the first perception of someone. That person is too skinny. That person is too tall. And we've we've just had a perception and an immediate response to it. And we're not tuned in to what's happening. That the person is just that tall or that skinny. That there's not a two to it. That that's something we've added. We can also see things, you know, it's the classic story about we see a snake where there's a stick. We don't see what's actually there because we're so busy caught in our preconceptions. So that's like on the first level of where the inappropriate attention will lead us. And then there's another, the next level is just the whole context in which we're seeing things. Like, if we're not paying attention, we may, you know, what, you know, the getting up on the wrong side of the bed, or uh, for me, it's like when I get a bad email that bothers me in some way, I have to watch what happens next because I will misunderstand and look uh, my, I will have inappropriate attention on the next email that I read. I will see it through a a lens that is no longer neutral. Or, you know, and I think this is a classic thing. I know that I'm very sensitive to this because I grew up um, in a household where my stepfather, what happened at work, completely affected what would happen at the dinner table. And I really remember resenting that. That, wait, I didn't do something bad. You're just angry about something else, and I'm getting the short end of the stick because of that. Not literally. But I'm getting the... I'm getting punished for your mind state. 
So when we are not paying attention to what our mind state is, what's coming, where, our, where we might be preoccupied or distracted, then that inappropriate attention can flavor everything. Can lead to a lot of thoughtlessness. Then there's another broader level of this inappropriate attention and more the distortions that result from inappropriate attention. And that's the larger context of views and opinions. And this is starting to be in this deeper level of conditioning where cultural, familial, from our history, where we have accumulated a whole view and this deep distortion from repeated uh, inappropriate or unwise attention, that now we've constructed a whole belief structure. Perhaps there's a, you know, that you have a certain group of people that over time you've established a certain view about, and now it is very difficult to, to wind your way through that and to come back to the wise and wholesome view. And this is what we have to work with culturally when we're working with implicit bias, when we're working with our uh, so culturally held views about mar- people in the non-dominant or people in marginalized situations, whether it's you know anything about um, gender, ability level, uh, choice of work, education, all of those things are the, if we have opinions about them, these are distortions that are a result of repeated unwise attention. And the way out of it is to see it and to appropriate, to see appropriately. So to see, so I find it very, very interesting. I don't shy away from when I go to the post office and I see somebody that is different from me in some way. Perhaps somebody who's older and walking with a walking stick. I watch and see if there is a story that comes in. Something that is a judgment or a belief or a view. And if it is, I note it and then turn. And they happen. They're really deeply embedded. It's not helpful to be embarrassed about it and pretend that it's not there. It's actually the bringing it into consciousness that makes the difference. Because then I see it. Oh, look, look at that story I just made. Look at that judgment I have. And then I can go, attending to that is not appropriate. Acknowledging that it's there, but now I'm not going to feed that. I'm going to move my attention in an appropriate way by perhaps smiling to the person, saying hello, uh, noticing you know, something else about them, somehow helping my own system reset 
from this long conditioned set of beliefs that have resulted from repeated unwise attention. This is, you know, the unwise attention is that we flatten somebody. We see them just as that quality. You know, this unwise attention, you know, I'm saying it in regards to a person, but you can expand this. This is unwise attention is how we're ecologically in such a mess. Is that we have culturally seen oil as something that should be extracted and burned. And that's the repeated structure. And we haven't looked more clearly at what's happening. So it's, it's um, this quality of wise attention is fundamental. And I realize in that last example, I'd have to wind us all the way through it. To, but just play with it yourself. Notice where at the root of any mm, unskillful, unwholesome behavior, somewhere at the root of that is an unwise attention. A way that Yoniso, seeing into the truth of it, seeing at the origin, seeing very clearly, has not happened. And to see all the way into the origin is to see how it's how something causes suffering or is causes unsatisfactoriness or does not. To see how it causes a problem and does not cause a problem. That's when you've really seen into the root of what's appropriate attention. You know, and it's, but the conditioning is so deep. You know, we, we, uh, you know, I know very well that I've seen it very clearly in my practice, the impermanence of things. So one of the challenges in this views and opinions is that we see something clearly, but it's not integrated yet. We don't see it at every moment. So a big part of this practice is trying to integrate what we've seen. So the question comes up and we ask ourselves, how do you attend unwisely? Where are you attending unwisely? And maybe if you can, checking, why do you do that? Is there some reason in that moment that is leading it? Do you think that a particular sensual pleasure is going to satisfy you? Is that leading you to seeing unwisely? Do you have a strong sense of self? The self-identification, and that's leading to an unwise The Buddha said that there were four different things that tended to lead to distortions on this very big level. And these are what our practice is trying to undercut. The belief that things are permanent. The belief that there is a self here. The belief that things, 
that what is actually dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactory, that something is going to be satisfactory that is not. That these are the fundamental results of the distortions. And so we have to ask ourselves again and again, how am I intending unwisely? Or how do I attend wisely? This is the use of our mindfulness. This is where it, the rubber meets the road of the mindfulness. So wise attention. Let's see a little bit more about that. Oh, I did. So one, the, one of the ways that we attend wisely is by seeing the Four Noble Truths, by understanding that. And that the Buddha pointed, this is how one attends wisely. One sees that this is unsatisfactory, this is stress, this is the origination of stress, this is the cessation of stress, this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. Stress is the word that Tanisaro Bhikkhu uses. One can use the word dukkha, one can use unsatisfactoriness or suffering, but seeing suffering and its origin. That is seen widely. I, I've noticed a change in myself of this. Sometimes I do see more clearly that things are impermanent and see how that has less suffering in it. I, I've collected over the years a lot of, uh, less than there used to be, but pottery you know, like stuff, I made things, my mother made things, uh, uh, people I know have made things or given me gifts. So I have, you know, like the bowls that we eat out of are made of pottery and there's vases and they're, and I love them. They're really nice and I've sort of collected them over time. And I remember early on when one of those broke, especially one that had you know, which was sort of all of them, had some kind of person connected with them or situation or something. And, oh my goodness, it was such a blow when one got broken. I'd just get so upset and I, you know, and if some friend broke it, I'd be there trying to pretend that I wasn't upset, but I was actually upset and they'd be able to, I'm, I'm not much of a poker face, they'd be able to tell I was upset and then they'd feel really bad and, oh, geez, what an epic amount of suffering. And then in more recent years, I've noticed it's been really interesting Pottery still gets broken. That hasn't changed. It's not like it's not like uh, all this practice made the dharma, the pottery stop breaking. It still does. But I just I see it break and I go, oh, there goes that one. Okay, that one that one had a good life. That was fun. I love it. Okay, into the trash. It's done. And I sort of sometimes go, shouldn't I be upset about that? You know, shouldn't I, I mean, somebody made that and it's like impermanence, it's done, it's over. And it's great. It sure makes my life easier. And, you know, so sometimes friends still break things or I break things and I can honestly say to them, it's okay, it was going to break sometime, now's its time, it's done. 
Whew, what a relaxation in my body. One less thing to worry about. When we see clearly that we're not separate, that there is not a self that is isolated from the world, this too leads to a relaxation. This is from Shozan Jack Hubner. says, I dissolve in activity in relationship with my surroundings so that the inner world can flow out and the outer world can arrive within. I have to both put in effort and know when to let go. A very just sort of evocative, simple way of when we're not isolated in ourselves. The world flows in, the world flows out. This is the result of clear seeing, of Yoniso Manasakara. And we see what causes suffering. Freedom through clear seeing. Nisargadatta says, learn to look without imagination, to listen without distortion. That is all. I like that also because it's saying, you know, you don't need, if we can just simplify down to what's already here and what's out here, it's good enough. In fact, it's amazing. It's beautiful. There is this unbelievable mysterious, fabulous world unfolding in all these different locations. In each box, a whole world is unfolding. And that is enough. Be present with that. Attend to that goodness. Attend to those skillful thoughts and wholesome actions that naturally arise. Cultivate them, feed them, encourage them. This is from Jeff Foster. Slow down. Take the day one breath at a time. You stand on sacred ground always, for it is your last day and your first day. You are dying today, so live. Be curious. Invite attention into the moment. What is it like here to see, to taste, to smell, to feel, to be alive? Laugh at the voices in your head. You are powerful. You are worthy. You belong. And you need no proof. So in this weekend of practice, my question for you to keep asking yourself is what are you attending to in this moment? Is there a way, do you know, first, do you know what you're attending to? What's here? And is there, is it skillful? Is it wise attention? Or is it unwise attention? Is there some adjustment you can make? This is the 
this is the power of mindfulness. It's not just passive. There's power in your attention. What's here? What are you attending to? And a lot of and a lot of things you may attend to are neutral, and that's fine too. The training of the mind on the breath, for instance, often starts out as quite neutral. And then as we do it, it becomes wholesome. When we realize that, oh, it's not like a big, tight effort, it's that I can just relax and appreciate the simplicity, the present moment, the ease, the sensations. And as we do that, We are cultivating wise attention. We're cultivating the ability to be with what is good and is already here. This is this this very basic quality that is the foundation of the practice. It's very encouraging. It's simplifying it. Can you feel how in each moment you can just look and see? And that's all you need to do. What am I attending to right now? Is there some shift I need to make to attend in a more wholesome way? So here's a uh, final little reading from Kitty O'Mara. Perhaps an offering to this year and to the possibility. And the people stayed home and read books and listened and rested and exercised and made art and played games and learned new ways of being and were still and listened more deeply. Some meditated, some prayed, some danced, some met their shadows, And the people began to think differently, and the people healed. And in the absence of people living in ignorant, dangerous, mindless, and heartless ways, the earth began to heal. And when the danger passed, and the people joined together again, they grieved their losses, and made new choices, and dreamed new images and created new ways to live and heal the earth fully as they too had been healed. So let's sit together for a few minutes and let the words settle.